0: Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. Deforestation in the Amazon continues to rise to record levels. Is it time for a different approach to conservation?
1: You know, there is a sense that, you know, you shouldn't profit from the Amazon, that it shouldn't lend itself to business interests. But of course, that is a mistake. The only way you're going to preserve the Amazon, is by matching it with people's prosperity.
0: The fire season is about to start in the Brazilian Amazon, and deforestation is already on the rise, jumping 41% in May to the highest level for the month in at least five years, according to preliminary data. This, of course, puts the future of the world's largest rainforest at risk, and sets up a diplomatic showdown between Brazil's government and U.S. President Joe Biden, who has made fighting climate change a central pillar of his administration's foreign policy. In the latest issue of America's Quarterly, we look at one solution to the problem, sustainable economic development. This is the idea that the Amazon forest is actually a -a one-of-a-kind, priceless economic asset that needs to be preserved that the forest's natural wealth, everything from cocoa to acai and natural ingredients for products like cosmetics and pharmaceuticals, could be a huge source of green jobs for the 35 million people who actually live in the Amazon basin and provide them an additional incentive to help keep the forest standing. It's a promising idea, one that is already being applied, but man, it is not easy producers in this sector. They face tough logistics, high taxes, extremely difficult transport costs, and of course, a Brazilian president, Jair Bolsonaro, who has consistently denied that deforestation is a problem, putting Brazil at the center of consumer boycotts globally and potential sanctions. Today on the podcast, We're going to have an extremely direct and honest conversation, (laughs) I promise, about these questions. We've invited two Brazilians who are experts on the sustainable development topic. Denis Minev is the CEO of Bemol, a top retailer in northern Brazil, and probably the best known angel investor in sustainable development projects in the Amazon. Cecilia Tornaghi, my colleague, is the managing editor at America's Quarterly and the real genius behind this latest issue. Let's start with Dennis. Dennis, you live in Manaus, which of course is the biggest city in the Amazon. What has it been like watching your region be at the center of global attention for the last two years because of these deforestation numbers? And what's the biggest misconception non-Brazilians have about the Amazon?
1: You know, the first aspect is that I remember a a film I watched a few years ago in the US called Groundhog Day. And that's what it feels like to see us in the news again, for the same reasons as we have always been in the news, except it seems every 15 years or so, the world remembers that the Amazon exists, and that we have a difficult way to develop ourselves. We haven't found a good way. And so, so we we rise again in the world's consciousness. The first important thing that I think people should understand about the Amazon is how large and diverse it is within the region. So i like to point out that there are nine countries in the Amazon, but from one corner of the Brazilian Amazon to the other, the state of Amapá to the state of Acre, the distance is the same as from New York to Denver. And you wouldn't advocate similar policies between New York and Denver. And even though the appearance of the ecosystem is similar, it's all green and it's dense, the ecosystems are actually very different. There are mountainous regions, there are plains, and people generally tend to lump it as only one thing. It's actually an enormous diversity of things that shouldn't be approached as only one ecosystem.
0: And, you know, we had an event last week at which you were one of the panelists, and you you talked a couple of times about the world lacking empathy for the Amazon, meaning that the world doesn't really understand, and and particularly this issue that it's not just a region that has um, however many billion trees, but it's also home. I mean, the Brazilian Amazon is home to 28 million people. What exactly did you mean by that?
1: Well, I mean that there's a strong dissonance between the way people outside the Amazon talk about the Amazon and people within the Amazon talk about the region. Outside the Amazon, there seems to be an agreement that you know, we should reduce deforestation and improve living conditions. When you go within the region, the discussion is completely different. You know, Environmental topics are not really part of the local discussion. What we discuss let's say, in business forums, for example, within the region, is mostly the depression that the economies of the region have gotten into since around 2015. As you know, Brazil went through a very difficult process at the end of, let's say, the PT government and the start of the new government, and the Amazon in particular suffered tremendously, And that has not been resolved yet. So we feel like we're still dealing with a problem from 2015, whereas the world looks at us and wants to talk about problems that, let's say, got worse in 2019 and 2020. And that's not the same discussion. So it seems, you know, two different parties talking about completely different things.
0: Cecilia, let me turn to you. I mean, we we spent four months, if not longer, working on this issue. I'm going to ask you a question that I asked you so many times while we were putting it together. Why do you think sustainable economic development, is one of the solutions to this issue of deforestation. I mean, did you come out of this process convinced that it's not just a do-gooder project for NGOs and for big corporations that are interested in environmental sustainability goals?
2: Well, Brian, seeing what people on the ground are doing, what Dennis was saying that from the outside, I am Brazilian, but I'm from Rio, has a completely different vision than he has being there on the ground, right? So Seeing from the outside, you have this vision, macro vision, seeing from the inside, which I had a little glimpse by talking to all the people there. You see that giving people the opportunity to become contributors to society by developing their own potential is definitely the way out. Because what we saw is a lot of people that have incredible ideas, fantastic solutions for the issues that we're looking from the outside urban deforestation, they have solutions that help protect the environment at the same time they give livelihood to the people that are on the ground, but they have all these hurdles that are way more difficult to surpass than in any other region because the Amazon is Vast, as Dennis said, is different. The financial system has yet to learn how to finance businesses there, how to create products that help these businesses develop. You have uh, logistics, of course, but then you have businesses that don't understand how to include the local scenario into logistics. I was talking to the people at Navegan, this great business that created sort of an, a, a river Uber, and they talk about, you know, the rivers are there, the towns are accessible by river, and then you have all this difficulty on actually legalizing and making all the system work and having the infrastructure for for the boats and the shippers to work and for the businesses to work. So there are so many fundamentals to change.
0: Just to pause for a second. I mean River Uber we may need to explain that one for a second. What what does it do? Cuz this was an example of one of the one of the companies that we looked at in the issue.
2: What they did is that they developed an app that connects existing boats to users, both in the business or travelers. And what they found is that a lot of the uh, vessels there and captains in large vessels were still managing their business on pencil and paper. So you know, planning was impossible and costs were higher because you can't plan accordingly and all that. And also for passengers, you would get to the station and you wouldn't know if there was a boat waiting for you or not. Looking from Rio or New York, it seems absurd that this would be a problem. But if you go there, that was the reality, right? So that simple app could help so many people just plan their lives accordingly. That lowers costs, that makes life so much simpler for for people and for businesses to operate.
1: Well, Cecilia, if I may add, uh, we are actually investors in Navegún. So there are so many complexities. I will add, for example, the complexities of dealing with the triple frontier between uh, Brazil, Colombia, and Peru, where a lot of drug trafficking happens. And most of the drug trafficking happens through boats. So you don't want to rent out, let's say, a boat that is doing drug trafficking. That's tough to figure out. Also, many of these boats are, I will call them informal, but uh, legally they are illegal. So so how do you manage if most of your potential clients are not perfectly formal? Imagine Uber, but the guys don't have, you know, they, they don't have a license plate or they don't have a driver's license. You know, how do you manage that? The complexities are enormous.
0: Well, and and Dennis, I mean, look, these projects that we profiled in this issue of America's Quarterly, whether the River Uber or some of these things like sustainable coffee cultivation, which turns out coffee grows really well when there's native Amazon vegetation around, herbal remedies that can be used for things like glaucoma, more traditional well-known products like acai or the giant Amazonian fish, the pirarucu, which is just ugly as hell, but delicious. That's actually on the cover of this issue. You. I mean, it all sounds great, but then the execution, it runs into these challenges. I mean, you're basically referencing the case of this River Uber, Navegam informality and illegality. So in your experience, Dennis, as an angel investor in these kinds of projects, what are the biggest obstacles to actually making this dream of sustainable development in the Amazon a reality?
1: Brian, first I'll take issue with the ugliness of Piraruku. You know, it's actually a really prized aquarium fish in Asia. And so I do think some people find it
0: beautiful. You know, its tail is red. It's not so bad. My only point is if I was to accidentally catch one of these things, I would be horrified. Also, I would never guess that such a big fish in that environment would be so... Good. That's that's kind of my main point and calling it ugly. I'm a big fan of the piraruku. I just don't think it's gonna win a beauty contest.
1: You know, it's a great sports fish as well. So if anybody is listening, you can do sport fishing with it. But anyways, the issue of sustainable development, what I like to say is that most of it has been tried before and failed. And it's important to understand why it failed. Now we we have to go back through let's say the last twenty years of history in the Amazon. understand why most of sustainable development projects failed, and even though they failed, how did we manage to reduce deforestation, let's say between 2003 and 2012. It's important to understand because it's not replicable. We can't do it again. In part, it had to do with the super cycle of commodities, which were unlikely to face such a long and strong one again in the near future. But the main issues have to do, of course, you mentioned logistics, but also legal issues, bureaucracy in the Amazon. You know, there is a sense that, you know, you shouldn't profit from the Amazon. I think, you know, that's a a bit of a communist sense within some sections of, let's say, the public sector in Brazil, that the Amazon is something so beautiful and pure that it shouldn't lend itself to business interests. Well, I understand that feeling, but of course, that is a mistake. The only way you're going to preserve the Amazon is by matching it with people's prosperity. And people's prosperity is directly linked to the prosperity of businesses. There is no other way in no other society in the world that they develop without having prosperous businesses. So that's point number one.
2: Dennis, if I may add to, to what you're saying, I think that there is a, a, also a vision from the outside that the Amazon is so pure and needs to be conserved and a vision from the inside that I heard a lot about, well, you know, everybody wants to keep it as is. So I'm getting the heck out of here and get my life elsewhere. So making the Amazon interesting and exciting for Amazonians to be there and and be able to have, you know, space to develop themselves as well. But I think that Apart from the commodity cycle and all that, I think rule of law is is also a major item, isn't it? I mean, we see rule of law as a major hurdle. You mentioned drug traffickers using the rivers, but there's also all the illegal logging, illegal mining, and all of that that's been increasing in the region. And that spokes investors, too, doesn't it?
1: Oh for sure. The issue with rule of law and institutions in general is that they have to have let's say popular buy-in. And what you had back in let's say 2005 the period when deforestation was going down is you had prosperity coming to the region. Now I call it a kind of a fake prosperity, but it was prosperity nonetheless. So we had transfer payments like Bolsa Família and Aposentadoria Rural, which is a retirement benefit for people in the rural regions. We also had a lot of money going to the municipalities because of increases in income taxes in Brazil. So everybody was benefiting at the same time. Then it was easier to implement, let's say, a stronger rule of law when it comes to the environment. Those features are no longer existing. So the Bolsa Familia has been weakened. There has been a pension reform that reduced the pensions for people in the Amazon. And Brazil has gotten into a recession. So the municipalities are getting a lot less money than they used to. In these circumstances, it is much harder to implement stronger institutions, because you will not have the buy-in from the municipalities, from the people on the ground. And that's, to me, the main issue. My business operates in about 70 municipalities. So whenever I go to one of these places, you get a sense of what people are thinking. And generally, what they're thinking is, how can I do business? You know, what can I do with my land? People are looking for alternatives now in the midst of a a strong recession that has hit the Amazon since 2015. And so if you can't answer that question, you can't even get to the environmental rule of law and institutions.
0: Dennis, I mean, in those conversations that you have with everyday people there on the ground in your stores and elsewhere, I mean, if people could choose between a model that was, you know, basically... The current one, or at least the one that's been most in the headlines, which is you know, land speculation, illegal logging, the continued growth of cattle and soy farms, which is a model that, apart from being environmentally disastrous, has not really increased the standard of living for most people in the Amazon or this you know, more sustainable model which would they choose? And I, the way I phrased that, it sounds like kind of a loaded question. You know, my preference on this is clear as an outsider, but I'm guessing that most people in the region don't actually think of it that way.
1: I'd like to point to the example of Rondônia. Hondonia is a new state in Brazil. You know, 50 years ago, it had about 100,000 people. Now it has about 2 million people. And it has within the Amazon... Fairly good social indicators like health and education, but it's also terrible in terms of historic deforestation. The economy there was based on cattle breeding and now soy, and those models they work for them, especially you know when you go and you talk to a, a cattle breeder or, or a soy planter, you know they don 't see the alternatives the alternatives you mentioned like pirarucu well pirarucu doesn't work there it's not the right environment for pirarucu pirarucu usually is done in lakes so that doesn't work there agroforestry is something new that people are starting to approach but it's still unproven you know these people they come from southern brazil where the motto is cattle and soy so you need examples People need to see someone making a lot of money with sustainable development. When they don't see that, and all they see is people making money with soy and with cattle, that's what they're going to do. Few people are going to be willing to take those kinds of risks.
0: So that leads me to my next question. And for both of you, let me start with Cecilia, though. What is it that the government can do in Brazil what is it that the private sector can do in Brazil to help create more of these you know, kind of exemplary projects that can serve as kind of a model for others to follow? Because what Dennis is saying is consistent with what we heard putting this issue together, that for now, these kinds of projects, they remain very boutique. Some of them are viable. Some of them have export markets. It's not that it's all just a, a big fever dream, you know, cooked up by NGOs and sort of other well-meaning foreigners. It is actually happening, but the scale as of yet is just not there. So, Cecilia, in terms of what needs to be done, what we learned putting together this issue, what what do
2: you think? I agree with Dennis that examples are important, but we need incentives for those examples to exist right we've done that before in the country we've created embrapa which created the, the the soy industry in brazil right so the research institute that basically allowed brazil to become the leader in soy and that was an incentive that was a state devised project that became an industry forestry was similar brazil did not have production until the government decided to invest in it and gave, you know, those incentives created a world leading global industry. So I think incentives are important and they have to be designed and planned and thought through looking at the Amazon as a place. Cause I agree with Dennis. Dennis, the only option right now is soy and kettle. That's where you know you can get money, but you can't get many jobs doing that either. So what you have is that some people making money, a lot of people still left behind that are actually then actively recruited by organized crime, by illegal loggers, by miners. So then you have this compound problem of money being made in one side, but people left without jobs and opportunities on another that end up increasing the problem.
1: You know, Cecilia, I agree with you. I just use a different word. Instead of incentives, I use the word ambition. So when you mentioned Embrapa in the center west of the region, you know, that was Brazilian ambition to create something great. In the Amazon, we have not been ambitious to create anything great. And I agree also that the current model is not working. We have terrible indicators for health, for education, for for anything. We're not getting wealthy this way. And of course, we are partially destroying the environment. I point to one alternative that I believe is the greatest one we have. We should be thinking about reforesting everything we've deforested. There's about 700,000 kilometers. That's about the size of Texas, you know, Brian's Texas. So if we were to reforest it, you know, that would be enormous. And if we could find an economic model to profit from reforesting, well, then we're done. We get the jobs, we get the economy, and we get the environment
0: solved. Dennis, I agree. Ambition is important. But the incentives specifically that Cecilia speaks of are also necessary. I mean, if you had a magic wand or a direct line to this government, whether it be the federal government or the state government or elsewhere, what would you be asking for to make some of these projects more viable?
1: I generally ask of them imagination because I think that's what's lacking sequential governments. They're not imagining what a prosperous economy in the Amazon looks like. And if you can't imagine it, then you can't put it on the ground. If we get imagination, then we need better laws, laws that will incentivize people to recuperate their areas. Today, you don't get any special bonus for maintaining your land forested or being productive. Employment is very hard to deal with in Brazil as you know labor laws in Brazil are very complex you're going to have to rethink
0: final question it's for both of you let me let me stick with Dennis though first what advice tips would you give to a non-brazilian listener to this podcast who wants to either help these kinds of efforts or who wants to profit from them? Meaning, I mean, we have lots of investors and kind of a big financial audience that looks at Latin America and particularly at Amazon issues for this podcast. What tips would you give to that audience in terms of, you know, really wanting to to get involved in this? There are
1: vehicles being established and there are people working on the ground. So on the philanthropic side, there are serious NGOs. I would generally recommend. The local NGOs and not necessarily the international ones, the local NGOs, they have more of a local voice, which I tend to prefer. In terms of investing, there are opportunities. You know, there are private equity and venture capital funds being established to invest in the Amazon. This is, of course, high risk. You know, most of the enterprises that have been tried in the Amazon have not done so well. But there are success cases, you know, our own business is a success case. And I'm personally investing in a few different venture capital funds that are looking for interesting solutions to the Amazon. I think you have to look on the ground. It's very hard to do it from afar. You have to get engaged and understand the local context.
0: Cecilia, final word to you after months working on this issue. What's your what's your tip for the non-Brazilians?
2: I think that the number one would be invest in the people. There are amazing people doing incredible things. So agree with Dennis, go local. It's, you know, it's hard at this point to look for humongous uh, opportunities. We have to look at the smaller ones, but they have incredible potential. The people there on the ground have incredible ideas, have amazing solutions, and all they need is a little bit of opportunity.
0: And some capital too, I'm sure. To learn more about some of these cases that we profiled and also to see an interesting article from Dennis as well, just go to americasquarterly.org, where you can always find our great content. And thank you so much to both of you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you as well. Thank you for listening to the America's Quarterly podcast. You can read more at americasquarterly.org. Finally, if you enjoyed the episode... Please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly podcast is produced by Brendan O'Boyle and Leonie Rawls. America's Quarterly is an independent, not-for-profit publication of America's Society and the Council of the Americas.